This morning, we're going to continue our our series in uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, I think I have to point out, look, it's likely that when we're doing a series like this, based uh, around 18 verses of Scripture, a series that is going to go on until we break for Christmas, uh, some material may be referred to more than once. And uh, the current Alpha course, 7.30pm Wednesdays, Chester Street, is also going to touch on some of this material from time to time. So if you spot this, um, without irony, I want to commend you (laughs) for your faithful attendance and for paying such close attention. Well done. So to the Gospel. The Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels to be written. Uh, As Phil covered last week, there's lots of discussion about precisely when it was written, ranging from AD 55 to AD 90, but commentators generally agree that it was a time when the author, who outlived all the other apostles, he lived to a ripe old age, uh, he lived in a place called Ephesus, (laughs) where spookily, (laughs) Nigel and Callie were roaming on Friday. So if you'd like to know anything at all about Ephesus, okay, they've been there and they have a book. <laughs> There's nothing like asking someone who's kind of smelt the smell and felt the crunch of the soil under their feet and, and have seen the light and have seen the remains of something that was once you know, magnificent and huge. If you really do want to... to know anything about Ephesus, certainly a lot more than I can tell you, then actually do ask Nigel and Callie. Um, So, by the time the Gospel of John was written, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, had already been written and circulated, as had the letters of Paul and Peter. So John, the author of the Gospel that bears his name, he's one of Jesus' disciples, one of the original 12. And he was as qualified as you could possibly get to write a complete account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After all, he was one of the first disciples that Jesus chose. There's some debate about this, but the general view is he was the only of the 12 to be present at the cross. And it was John who stood up and explained the significance of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus to the throng in Jerusalem in the beginning of the book of Acts. So he had been a constant in the story and ministry of Jesus. He had been there himself. He was a witness to it. And he had personally witnessed the development of the church thereafter. Paul was very much the man on the spot. And in point of fact, just before the end of John's Gospel, we find uh, what commentators refer to as an authentication of the testimony. Uh, It's found in chapter 21 and verse 24. (coughs) Uh It says this, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony 
is true. You don't get better endorsements than that. And yet, surprisingly, he chooses not to write a complete account. And he doesn't relate everything that's already described in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Indeed, he finishes the Gospel with this comment, chapter 21 and verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So the Gospel of John was not explicitly written to be another biography of Jesus. He's completely upfront when he says he's being selective in what he includes. And his selections point to a distinct purpose. John is up to something. Okay, it would be sneaky, except he's telling us what he's up to, which makes it intentional. Okay? He says it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These, which is to say what he's already written in the gospel, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So now we get to our central text this morning, which is John chapter 1 and starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Unlike the other Gospels, and feel free to to check, um, John opens somewhere in in the sweep of eternity. Before there was mankind, before there was a place for mankind to be, before there was a physical universe, in a deliberate echo of Genesis 1, John starts with, in the beginning. Now, just to be clear, the beginning in both John 1 and Genesis 1, is our beginning. (laughs) It's the commencement of the story and the history of mankind and the beginning of the measurable universe. It is in no way the beginning of God who's not bound or measured by time and who walks in eternity. So in the beginning was the word. As Phil pointed out last week, what our Bible translates as the word, John used the Greek word logos. Uh, It was in the Bible before it was a ship. According to Aristotle, three things convinced men. The ethos, which is the personal character of the speaker. 
So you might believe someone because of their fine and upstanding reputation and the character of them that you have witnessed. Uh, The pathos, the persuasion from within. So you might be watching television and there is the advert for the poor abandoned puppies and they're there with their big brown eyes looking sad and soulful and there's sad music playing and a man says, send your check too. And you say, oh, I must do that. I must rescue the poor puppies. Okay, that's persuasion from within. The logos. The logos to the Greek mind was the ultimate proof, the final word. John didn't say in the beginning was the ethos. He didn't say in the beginning was someone of good character. Nor did he say in the beginning was the pathos. I just know it to be true. No, what he did write was, in the beginning was the logos, the ultimate proof, the final word. The ultimate proof, the final word, from the get-go, in the beginning. And when we come to verse 14, he uses logos again, telling us that this Jesus, the ultimate proof, the final word, this same Jesus who was in the beginning, became flesh, became a man. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father full of grace and truth. And as a side. This serves to make sense of verse 15. Where John the Baptist. Who uh, was the one that came before Jesus. Cried out saying. This is the one I spoke about. When I said. He who comes after me has surpassed me before he was because he was before me. He comes after me, he surpassed me because he was before me. Jesus was both before and after. And John recognised that. John recognised Jesus was out of time before he stepped in as a man and became flesh. So though he lived within recorded time as a man, Jesus is not bound by time. And as one commentator put it, there never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. Jesus shares the eternity of God. This means that the God of the Old Testament, who covenanted with Israel, who spoke through the prophets, was none other than God known in Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God has not changed. Jesus was always at the heart of God. God does not change. Jesus will always be at the heart of God. And this is why the Gospel of John begins exactly as the book of Genesis. It's the same. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'd like you to help me with an illustration. Don't look so suspicious. If you are a son, would you mind just standing up?
Okay. Look around, girls. Handsome church. Thank you very much. You can sit down. I don't know what Judah did, but we'll, uh, we'll excuse him. Babes in arms are excused from the illustration. <clears throat> if you are a father, would you mind standing up? thank you very much if you are both a father and a son would you mind standing up (laughs) yes you would mind standing up Thank you very much. You can sit down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's a verse that says men who preach shouldn't heckle. God, we know, is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is, and certainly at the end of this sermon, will remain a profound mystery. (laughs) But if we return to what was a very imperfect illustration, and at least partly designed to uh, make our new father stand up, Uh, The fact is that it's not unusual in our physical world to be several things and one thing at the same time. Uh, I'm both a father and a son, but there's only one of me. So whilst the outworking and the implications of a a three-in-one God is frankly way beyond my understanding, uh, personally, I don't have particular trouble accepting it as a fact. So we come back and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He is God the Son, one in the Godhead with the Father. And as a result, he is no less to be honoured and worshipped and adored. Then in verse 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Not working. Okay, take my word for it. I'm probably a bit out of order here. Uh, I kind of imagine a two-way conversation with with John. Um, If you're married, uh, guys, you'll probably recognise this conversation. Um, where you make a statement and then you are queried on it several times, even though you think that the statement was probably quite clear. So John says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And Mrs. John says, Are you sure all things were made through him, darling? And John says, Without him nothing was made. And Mrs. John says, What, nothing at all? And John says, without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
Is that clear, darling? I made that last bit up. There's no room for manoeuvre. Paul writes in, in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1. Yay. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Um, I love this verse because... <laughs> and through whom he also made the universe. It's almost a bit of a throwaway at the end. No, 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 no. And of course, he made the universe. Moving on. His son, Jesus Christ, through whom also he made the universe. I was a bit surprised to come across this article on the BBC website. Big Bang and religion mixed in soon debate. Um... Uh, I'll read you just a little bit of the of the article. Some of Europe's most prominent scientists have opened a debate with philosophers and theologians over the origins of everything. The event in Geneva, Switzerland, is described as a search for common ground between religion and science over how the universe began. Now, I've uh, personally, I've got a lot of sympathy for the scientific community who over decades of research on the origin of the universe, thought they had scaled the mountain of understanding only to find Christian theologians theologians already at the top. It must have been galling. It must have been galling to arrive at the Big Bang Theory, to postulate the creation of the universe to a single moment in time, only to find it generally consistent with what the Bible said all along. I can see why they wouldn't want to get burned like that again and why they would hold a conference. But, you know, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It never claimed to be. It just sets down what happened by the hands of Jesus, the creator of the universe. It doesn't pretend to say how and it doesn't enter into a debate. I checked how the conference was going yesterday It was not a success. Now we can kick the tyres on the how question. There's nothing wrong with scientific endeavour and research. But I suggest the most appropriate response is to consider the implications of Jesus being the creator God. For this goes to the heart of who he is and consequently how we respond to him. Firstly, Jesus meant to create wasn't accidental it was intentional he did it on purpose to go off my notes for a minute the word that Callie brought this morning God meant to create you he wanted you he wanted to know and love you you are not a mistake you are not an accident Professor Stephen Hawking and for the record, that is not me, holds to a theory he calls spontaneous creation and says it was only necessary for, quote, the blue touch paper, unquote, to be lit, to, quote, set the universe going. Uh, He doesn't answer where this blue touch paper came from and who lit it, if not God. Creation was not accidental. It was not spontaneous. Jesus 
meant to create. He did it on purpose. It was intentional. It's not an accident. Now, one... uh, uh, wouldn't be fair to call him a commentator. It was more a comedian, really. Um, he was pointing out the fact that God went completely overboard when he created the universe. He said it was like painting the, the, the picture from the Sistine Chapel in your downstairs loo. He went completely overboard. The scale, the size of it, the complexity of it. And you do get people that say because of the scale and the size and the complexity of it, oh, there must be others. You know, you get all kinds of theories. Oh, we can't be alone. Why did Jesus create the universe on the scale that he did? Well, I find personally two scriptures are particularly helpful. Isaiah forty twenty six. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The universe that we perceive is so vast in scale and complexity to make a point about Jesus and specifically to make a point about his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. They're not designed to comfort us as to the state of our own knowledge, nor our own glory. To quote Piper, the created universe is all about glory. The deepest longing of the human heart and the deepest meaning of heaven and earth are summed up in this, the glory of God. The universe was made to show it, and we were made to see it and savour it. It's the deepest longing of our hearts to know the glory of God. (coughs) But we look at the created universe and we wonder how a God so vast, so infinite, of such power could relate to us or would even want to. Which brings us back to where we started. For the glory of God is found in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 calls him the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John himself uh, records 17 and verse 24. He records about Jesus who was praying when he was speaking to his father and he said this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The central mind-blowing truth uh, is this, the word of God. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us to make the glory of the creator of the universe accessible to you and me through Jesus Christ. Two Corinthians 4, 6 tells us this. For God, who said, 
Let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And Romans 5, uh, 1 and 2, it summarizes the place of those who have taken Jesus into their heart towards the glory of God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In my youth, perfectly intelligent people would argue that Jesus never existed, that he was a figure of myth, a story perhaps told over the campfires of the Roman Empire, some sort of cultural myth. Um, Dialogue's moved on. I don't think any dispassionate observer would now claim that Jesus never existed, um, because to do so would invite um, quite a bit of ridicule and would mark them out as someone who has uh, rushed to judgment without weighing the evidence. The matter of the historical figure, Jesus, has been picked over by finer minds than mine and yours, and it stands up. So the discussion's moved on. It's not whether Jesus, it's who or what Jesus. It's Gandhi's view. A man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. H.G. Wells, I am an historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess, as a historian, I find that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, I submit to you that these two men, great men of their time, have fallen into the same trap. They have completely failed to take into account that Jesus is the creator God. And without this understanding, it becomes possible to say generally complimentary and admiring things about him, which, though true in themselves, are completely without perspective. Uh, Let me illustrate. Um, The story is told of an American tourist uh, visiting Sweden in the 1950s. Uh, He boarded a bus in Stockholm and uh, finding that the gentleman sitting next to him spoke English. They got into conversation. Um, I guess it must have been quite nice to find someone to talk to. Now, I don't know how it came about, but after the, the compliments about the Swedish architecture and the scenery and so forth, the tourist began outlining the relative benefits of the American political system and comparing them to Sweden, which is a monarchy. Uh, And as the Swedish gentleman uh, ultimately arose for his stop, the the tourist ended with this question. Do you know, he said, that anyone can write to the President of the United States and expect to get a reply? That's interesting, said the Swedish gentleman, uh, pausing at the door. But do you know that any Swedish citizen can speak to the king on the bus? True. The moral of this story is know who you are dealing with before you start making pronouncements. Who is Jesus? 
Well, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. A man who was merely a man said the sort of, and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Here's what Paul said. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now that's who Jesus is. Phil. Phil.